And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. There are in these words elements of finality. There's an end point. Uh, It is in itself a judgment pronounced. Now the Lord understands that he came unto his own and what? His own received him not. John tells us that in his uh, prologue to his gospel. That he came to his own and his own received him not. Well, the judgment is rendered there in verse 35. Behold, your house is left to you. Well, the history of the Jewish people since the time of Christ is a long, excruciating desolation. It all really began to unfold about 30 years uh, after Jesus was on the scene. It was May of the year 66 AD when the Jewish revolution against Rome began to break out. Uh, having taken about as much as they could uh, of Roman you know, oppression, injustice, and pagan idolatry, the Jews, uh, they were ready to fight back against Rome. Now this was largely driven by a particular group of Jews called the Zealots. Uh, They were a party of radical nationalism and they resorted to guerrilla tactics and terrorist strikes is what we would call them today. Many Jews took up whatever arms they found or could find and joined this rebellion. Now Rome struck back. And Rome struck back with devastating force. Titus, the Roman general, he came down to Jerusalem with an army in excess of 80,000 men. This is larger than twice the population of Jerusalem. And before it was done, Jews were massacred everywhere. Titus destroyed Jerusalem. He burnt the temple to the ground. At about the same time, the Gentiles in Damascus, which is northeast of Jerusalem, Jews from here, Damascus is northeast here, uh, the Gentiles there, because of their own hatred for the Jews, killed some 10,000 Jews in and around Damascus while this was going on uh, in Jerusalem. It was several centuries later that the Roman Emperor Theodotius II He enacted a legal code that declared Jews were inherently inferior as a race and they weren't deserving of the same legal rights and protections and privileges as everyone else. And so anti-Semitism, you ever heard of that? Anti-Semitism, yeah, Jeremy's raising his, he heard about it at school, I have a year somewhere. Read about it, there you go, good boy. We've got a reader on our hands, I love it. So anti-Semitism became codified as law in the ancient world. In AD 630, the, the Byzantine emperor Heraclius, he banished all, Jeru- all Jews from Jerusalem who had come back and resettled there. About 400 years later, you come to the Crusades. The first one was in 1096. Now in the Crusades, the established church in Europe, it's the Catholic church, they instigated what was declared to be a holy war to deliver the Holy Land from the occupation and the control of the Muslim Turks who had ruled it for several centuries. However, kind of as a sidelight, they feared the Jews might want to move back in and resettle the land once it was freed from the Turks. 
and as history records, many crusaders repeatedly engaged in brutal massacres of European Jews on their way to Jerusalem. And it's sad to say that they did this all in the name of Jesus Christ. They marched to route towards Jerusalem, killing the Jews along the way. Jewish people don't forget this. Many of them who know their history don't forget that in the name of Jesus, their people were slaughtered all across Europe. And it's not just a matter for them to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's getting past the fact that in the name of Jesus Christ, many people tried to exterminate them. Now, this Jewish persecution had continued for the next several centuries across Europe. In 1492, what happened in 1492? Columbus sailed the, blue, the seas of blue, whatever. Right. The year that he's sailing over here to find America or find something, he finds us. Uh, that year, the uh, law was passed and the Jews were expelled from Spain. In 1894, uh, a Jewish army officer by the name of Albert Dreyfus in France, he was falsely confu uh, confused, no, accused and convicted of treason simply because he was Jewish. So for many centuries, anti-Semitism just polluted most of Western civilization. Well, then comes the Holocaust. We know a lot about that, don't we? Before Hitler is done, in excess of 6 million Jews are slaughtered, gassed, killed in just a myriad of ways. And many of those horror stories are known to us. All of that stuff is demon-inspired atrocity. And it's not grounded only in religion, but in racial prejudice, mixed with a twisted perspective on religion. And there's really no justification for any of it. So for 2,000 years, Jews have endured persecution after persecution, falsely accused, treated unjustly, denied a dignity, even driven out of country after country, frequently massacred, massacred without mercy for no other, no other reason than simply being Jewish. The modern state of Israel, it continues to be besieged and, and beleaguered by an endless array of terrorists who attempt to blow them into eternity at every opportunity. Today, there are 28, 28 excuse me, Arab nations. There's one Jewish nation. Now, this goes, this goes back to Abraham, y'all. Uh, you've, you've got Ishmael, who had 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons come the Arab nations. Good old Abraham has one more son, the, the son of promise, Isaac. Out of Isaac comes the Jews. The Arabs have always hated the Jews. Of those 28 Arab nations, there's not a one that would not be tickled pink if Israel, the nation of Israel, just got annihilated off the face of the earth. They have it against them. Well, the Jews, they have a very clear and well-established monument to, the, to their 2,000 years of suffering. We call it the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is the partial western wall of the temple. Um, it was Herod's temple. He's the one that actually constructed it. It's the third temple. It's just a constant reminding of the suffering of the Jews. Now, all of this suffering can be traced back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28. There, God promised, you obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, <laughs> what? I'll curse you. Well, that comes into clear focus here in our text. When Jesus says to them, your house is left to you desolate, it's because they have rejected the Messiah. 
This is what happens to a people that is unprotected by God. Now, the, the truth of the matter is the nation has set its course. He came unto his own, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's fixed. Jesus here is in the final winter and, uh, of his life and ministry. In the spring, just six months later or so, he's going to arrive in Jerusalem and he will be executed. He's going to die at the hands of the very people he came to save. Now that's set. That die has already been cast. Now our text demonstrates three kind of divine reactions to the nation of Israel. And of course the first one is compassion. You've got compassion, condemnation, and conversion. Compassion. And that's the first verse there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How I often wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Now, this is grief. This is a heavy heart. This is anguish of soul. It reminds me of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah uh, chapter 13, verse 16 He's talking to the people of Israel. He says, give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. So he's saying, repent, turn back to God. Here's Jeremiah's response. But if you will not listen to it, my word, if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such people, or excuse me, for such pride. And my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. This is why Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. These are the tears of God wet through the eyes of Jeremiah. God no, finds no pleasure, he says, in the death of the wicked. God weeps through the eyes of any who look at the plight of those who don't believe, and particularly the plight of Israel and their unbelief. The pain is in the O. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, it's almost like a groan and nothing more. An inarticulate surge of emotion. And then to say Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is indicative of the pathos that Jesus displays in Luke 10. Do you remember when he's talking to Martha and he says, Martha, Martha. Remember that? How about in Luke 22 when he says, Simon, Simon. How about Acts 9, when Jesus speaks from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We see this in David as well. If you go back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18, David has just received word that his son Absalom has died in battle. Remember he gets the word? And then he says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's this kind of emotion, pathos, grief, and agony. Now, Jerusalem stands for the whole nation. It's symbolic of a nation that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to them. And by the way, those are two parallel statements, killing the prophets and stoning those sent to her. They're saying the same thing. Now, both are present participles could be translated like this, who are killing the prophets and are stoning those to, who sent to her. They weren't done. They had done it in the past. They're doing it today and they're going to continue to do it. 
Now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the Jews had killed many righteous people and prophets right there in Jerusalem, some in the very temple of God. Within six months of our text, they're going to crucify Jesus, their Messiah. In Matthew 7, they stoned Stephen to death. I said Matthew 7, Acts 7. (laughs) In Acts 15, James, one of the sons of thunder, the brother of John, he's going to die by the sword. They killed in the past and they'll kill again. They were murderers of the righteous people. They were murderers of the messengers of God. They perpetuated their own suffering by their constant killing those whom God sent. Now, in a sense, all the centuries of sorrow the Jews have endured, they are actually the cup of wrath filled with the blood that they themselves have spilt. Now, how can one generation suffer for all that? How can one generation be the generation that suffers for all of the past? Well, in the case of the Jews, the last generation that gets the judgment is the guiltiest of all because they have rejected all the warnings of the past. That generation engaged in the same sins as past generations. They disregarded all those past warnings and all those past judgments. They have a greater accumulated guilt. They had the Old Testament, didn't they? They had the whole record of it. They knew that blessing would come if they obeyed and curse would come if they didn't. They had the warnings of all the prophets. They had John the Baptist. They had Jesus himself, the Messiah, in their presence. They had the 12. They had the 70 that was sent out to preach. And when the judgment finally falls, it falls on that generation because they've had the greatest exposure to the truth. They bore the guilt of all of that because they learned nothing from it. So the slaughter was on. (laughs) It's going to happen. But the heart of God was and is broken today. That's why Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often, how frequently I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. So while God is righteous and holy, and therefore angry about sin, we understand that, he's at the same time perfectly compassionate. His compassion is as perfect as his justice. His tenderheartedness is equal to his anger. Now when I hear the words, I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, I immediately think of Psalm 91. Y'all familiar with Psalm 91? If you're not, you ought to be. It's one of my favorites. It begins, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you shall seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. That is God's compassionate desire for his people. We see that compassion in Jesus' words as he just groans over Jerusalem. But by and large, it was not the desire of Israel. There at the end of verse 34 it says, And you would not have it. They refused God's protection. They refused God's love. They refused God's salvation. They refused God's kingdom. 
This is their history. It's always this way, rebellious, <laughs> disobedient, killing the prophets, killing the messengers, and finally killing their own Messiah. That brings us to the second word here, condemnation. Verse 35 says, your house is left to you. If you do have an NASB, you will notice that the word desolate is in italics, it's leaning. I'll just give you a heads up, NASB, part of their nomenclature, if it's, in, if it's leaning, if it's in italics, it wasn't there in the Greek. The translators added that. Now it is in Matthew's. Matthew does say that. But here, Luke says, he just says, your house is left to you. Jesus says, I'm out. I'm gone. You are on your own. Now, AD 70 is when a lot of this began, of course. Uh, the just Jewish historian Josephus, he says, while the sanctuary was burning, set on fire by Titus and his army, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground. That's interesting way to say it, isn't it? Raised to the ground. It means they flattened it. Leaving only the loftiest of towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west. We call it the western wall. All the rest was so completely raised to the ground as to lead future visitors to that spot. No reason to believe that a city had ever been inhabited. Now the people would come up and go, oh, people used to live here? That's how bad it was, end quote. This is the devastation of that generation that is still going on to in degrees today through the Holocaust, through all of the horrible things that have has come upon uh, the nation of Israel. Why have they suffered so greatly? Why do they suffer even now these uh, horribly deadly, horrible, deadly terrorist, terrorist killings? Why will they yet suffer in the future? Well, it's because of that curse way back in Deuteronomy 28. So we've looked at the compassion of Jesus and saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. We've seen the condemnation in the statement, your house is left to you. Now both of those words had the element of the past. We saw the Lord's compassion in his words. That was a couple thousand years ago. We've seen the condemnation that has come upon the Jewish nation over the last two millennia. And that brings us to our third word, conversion. Unlike the previous two words, the conversion that Jesus speaks of at the end of verse 35 is actually in the future. We begin to look at a time when the desolation of Israel ends. He says, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word until gives us hope that the story isn't over, that the last chapter has not been written. Until. That's, that's kind of a, a hopeful word. That's a future time when they will see Jesus, when they will recognize him, and they'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there, there are many people that doubt that God still has a plan for the restoration and the salvation and the blessing and the glory of the nation of Israel. But we can't just leave this issue alone because there's something great at stake here. And what's at stake is the faithfulness of God. To put it simply, if God cannot be trusted for what he promised Israel, why in the world would I trust him for what he's promised me? 
If he can't keep his word concerning Israel, why should I trust him? If God is not a covenant-keeping God, if God is not a faithful God, if God is not trustworthy with regard to Israel and what he pledged and promised to them, why would I trust him with my life and with my destiny, with my eternity? Here I've got to turn to Romans 10 and 11, which are about Israel. The very last verse in chapter 10, Paul writes, but as for Israel, he says, all the, this is God speaking here, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's God's description of Israel. That's the end of that chapter. Here's the first verse of chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Now that negation, that may it never be, that is the strongest negative in the Greek language. It's no, 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 impossible, can't happen. Now first Paul points to his own salvation, demonstrating that salvation is available to individual Jews. And then Paul uses Elijah as an example of the remnant. In Elijah's day, God said that there were 7,000 Israelites who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Elisha thought he was all alone. Lord, I'm all alone. He says, oh, no, no, no. I have 7,000, a remnant, kind of set off the side for myself. I have a remnant of 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then it says in verse 5 that there was a remnant in Paul's day. Well, guess what? There is a remnant today as well. But it's more than the idea that this remnant is simply to become a part of the church. Verse 25 says something very interesting in Romans 11. It says that there, to this point, there has been a partial hardening that has come on Israel. A hardening on the nation of Israel. And it's, it, it's, it's until... The time of the Gentiles is complete. Now, this is looking forward, as if you will. It's a reference to the completion of the church age. When all of the Gentiles will have come into Christ that are ever coming. Then he says in verse 26 that when this is complete, all Israel will be saved. Now, don't ask me what Tyler's looking at me. He wants to know what I think that means. I don't know what that means except to say that I know that God is not finished with Israel. Okay? That's as, that's as much as I can tell you. It is yet to come, though. This is still future. There will come a time, back to our text in, in Luke 13 there, when you see me, they, they see Jesus, and they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will finally recognize their Messiah. And I just want to support this real quick, and then we're going to close. 1 Samuel 12.22, it says the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Remember I said something was at stake concerning Israel? What's at stake is the name of God. That's the bottom line. The Lord will not abandon his people. The Jews on account because of his great name. His name is who he is. And who he is is faithful. If he says it, 
He will do it. Now, several different times, um, listening to R.C. Sproul, I heard him say that Hebrews was his favorite book of the Bible. If he just had one book, he would take the book of Hebrews. If he only had one chapter, he would take Genesis 15. And if he only had one verse, it'd be Genesis 15, 18. Let me tell you what's going on. In verse 1 of chapter 15 of Genesis, God makes a promise of great reward to Abraham. Abraham questions God. Why? It's actually Abram at this point. Why? He doesn't have any children. How am I going to... They're, they're thinking in terms of children. That would be the greatest inheritance. And he, he's like, how can this happen? I don't even have an heir. The only heir I've got is Eliezer of Damascus. He's my servant. How is this going to happen? God says, t- takes him outside. Says, look at the stars, Abram. He says, count them if you can. So numerous will your descendants be. Then in verse 6, now R.C. R.C. takes verse 18, and we'll get to that in a minute. I think verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And he, Abram, believed him, God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you understand that's the essence of faith? Believing what God says. And he credited it as righteousness to Abraham. Oh. Well, in verse 8, God promises Abraham or Abram land. And he responds, well, how can I know that I have it? Now, that takes us to verse 9. And we'll begin reading this. This is uh, Genesis 15, 9. And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two. In half, okay, and laid each half opposite the other. If so, you can just picture there's a line of animals that have been cut in two, okay, and there's space for to walk walk between. Um, the birds of the prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun had gone down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, this is part of the sleep. Part of the vision, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. We know what that is. That's Egypt. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. Who's that? The Egyptians. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. God told that 400 years in advance. While it's going on, he tells the people of Israel, ask your Egypt, Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver and salt and stone, precious jewels, and they gave it to them. So they left Egypt extremely wealthy. God talked about this 400 years in advance. As for you, verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. I believe it's 175 years uh, Abraham lived. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here. The people, your people, will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared. Remember, he's in this deep sleep. He's kind of in a vision state. He says, there appeared, where am I at? A smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. You may not be familiar with this language at all, but there is a covenant being made. This is what a covenant was. You cut the animal in half and say, so, me, so may it be to me if I fail to keep this covenant. 
between us. It's very descriptive. We see it. This is not, this is not particular to Abraham and this time as well. This was a Near East tradition that goes quite a ways back. Now, um, this flaming torch and this smoking oven passed between these pieces. Verse 18, here's R.C.'s favorite verse. On that day, the Lord made, the actual word is cut. What does the ESV say? Oh, man. Anyway, the actual word is cut. It says, the Lord cut covenant with Abraham, saying... From the river of, uh, river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates. So that's from the Nile to the Euphrates. God cut covenant with him that day. This is, this is God making an everlasting promise to mankind through Abraham. Because he also told, it because, told Abraham, because of you, all the nations in the earth will be blessed. So this isn't just for Abraham. This is for mankind. That covenant... It's what we call a one-sided covenant. The only thing that's mentioned is what God is going to do. There's no faithfulness on Abram's part that's called upon. If you, then I. No. This is what I'm going to do. He cut covenant with Abraham. Now, that's, that's huge. The protector, the shield, the shelter, the father of Israel has abandoned them for now, right? They're under this hardening, this partial hardening until the time of the Gentiles is complete. But not forever. There is a day coming when Israel will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a time uh, that we long for uh, we understand that uh, this is not uh, going to occur until Jesus comes again, and they will see Jesus. And Paul says that all Israel will be saved. Father, we just thank you that you're not done with Israel. Uh, God, they are your chosen people. We see that. We function today as the church, and uh, we thank you for that opportunity. God, help us to never remember our brothers uh, in the faith, Lord, uh, the Jewish people, the Israelites, uh, Lord, you are not done with them that, with them yet. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, what I just spoke about the Jews, the same thing goes for you in terms of the church. God is holding out. He says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Guess what? If you're not in Christ, you are basically a disobedient and obstinate people. Whether you're Jewish or not, that's who we are as a result of the fall. As a result of that original sin, we're in trouble and you need God. The good news for you is you can, you can, you can have him today. You believe. Remember? Abraham believed and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ as your means, as your salvation, as your Savior. In order to do that, you've got to set yourself to the side. We call that pride. Oh, no, I'm good. Or I can take care of this later. Whatever your excuse may be. No, you're not good enough and you aren't going to live forever. You need to get right with God. And there's only one way. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ. So I encourage you today to do that. He's calling. There is no doubt about it. If you hear him, 
you respond, you come. Believers, uh, I just hope that you're encouraged. Uh, we're told to pray for Jerusalem, to pray for the uh, chosen people of God. Uh, my father, I don't know if I would take this step, but I, I tell you, I'm, I'm right on his heels. Now, my dad, he'd be 105 now, so he's a different generation. But uh, hearing him preach, you know, and listening to him or what have you, he definitely believes that one of the reasons that America is the nation that it is is because we have just about been the sole source of support for Israel for many, many years. And as we kind of, as we can, support Israel, take care of them, God takes care of us. I don't know. He says he's going to bless those who bless you and I'll curse you that curse those that curse you. I'm just saying that we, we, we need not neglect, we should not. It's wrong for us to neglect the Jews. They can be part of the church today. They call them completed Jews, right? They're Jews that, yeah, they were looking for a salvation outside of Christ, but then they realized, my goodness, he was the Messiah. Maybe they read, maybe they read Isaiah 53, Anybody that knows the story of Jesus, but has not, you know, they're Jewish, they don't believe that the New Testament is right, they still, they still know the story. Then they read Psalm, I mean, uh, Isaiah 53, and you go, uh, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Yes, it is. We need to pray for our brothers. If you've got Jewish friends, don't be afraid to share with them Jesus Christ. He's the one who saves. He's the one they were looking for. And he was so different than what they were looking for, they didn't, didn't even recognize him. Remember, he went, he went to his own. And his own received him not. Maybe God can use us in our whatever context we find ourselves. Business, work, um, school, wherever. Recreation. We can minister to Jews who need to know that Jesus, yes, in fact, is the Messiah that the Old Testament talked about. And the New Testament says, yep, that's him. I just want to challenge you with that today as a body of believers. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.